What we learned last Sunday is that Daniel chapter 10 is uh, part of this preparation for the final revelation in the book of Daniel, which is in chapters 11 and 12. And Daniel 10 is all getting ready for that. And uh, Daniel had been mourning and fasting and praying for three weeks when he lifted up his eyes and he saw an awesome sight of someone who looked like a man but was unlike any man you've ever seen. Look with me, Daniel 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And this was probably an appearance of the Son of God, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Earlier in the chapter 7, remember Daniel had seen one like a son of man who was given all creation as his kingdom forever. And in that vision, Daniel also saw that all people worshipped him because he was not just son of man, but also son of God, the perfect king who will reign forever. And so now here at the end, as God prepares to give Daniel this final difficult revelation, he allows him to see a vision of Christ who is that king from Daniel 7. And so last week we focused on how necessary it is that all of us continually be looking toward the majesty and glory of the true king of kings, to be looking unto Jesus, we said. So as we continue in Daniel 10 this morning, we need to ask a pretty practical question here because it's a little bit of a complicated uh, section next. How many people appeared to Daniel in chapter 10? And who were they? So let's try to work our way through the four appearances to Daniel. And first, if you look at your handout, there's, there's the one that we read part of in verses 5 and 6. It's described as a man who has this awesome appearance that we just read. It's also described as a vision. We'll see that in just a minute. And it's terrifying. And this man speaks words. We're not told what they were. And then Daniel basically passes out. Let's read the end of that. Uh, So we read the description in verses 5 and 6, but now look at verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Okay, that's the first appearance, that, that vision. Now let's see what happens next. It's the second arrival. Of, it's an arrival of someone, verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, 
trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Okay. So that's the second appearance of someone to Daniel. It's someone whose hand touched Daniel and picked him up. And he he sounds like Gabriel from chapter nine. Did you see that he called Daniel greatly loved just like Gabriel did in chapter nine, verse 23. And he, he came because of Daniel's prayer. God sent him and he was withstood for 21 days. And then the angel Michael helped him. Now, that sounds a lot like an angel. And when that ends in verse 15, it sounds like Daniel's still standing up, but his head's down and he's mute. He can't, he can't get a word out and he can't look up. So now the third appearance, verse 16, and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Okay, so that's the third. It's one in the likeness of the children of man who who touches his lips so that he can speak. And when that one finishes, once again, Daniel's just about at the end of himself. No strength, no breath left. I don't know if he laid back down or went to sleep or stayed standing up. But here's what happened next. Verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, Oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, Michael. All right, so here's the fourth appearance. It is one having the appearance of a man. Again, he says things that sound like Gabriel, and he fights with Michael against princes. Okay, there's a lot going on there. Obviously, a lot to talk about. But all I'm trying to understand right now is how many people appeared to or came to Daniel. Four sections, four appearances, but how many persons and who were they? There's a lot of disagreement about that. I don't personally think it's that complicated. I think the first appearance is a vision of Christ and the other three are the angel Gabriel. The first is clearly distinct from the other three. It says that Daniel lifted up his eyes and looked. And I went and looked at, I looked up the use of that phrase in the Old Testament, and almost every time it's used for things that you look up and they're away from you. You kind of look into the distance and see things. And it, it, it specifically says in that first section, verse 7, that it was a vision a vision. 
And that description, as we talked about last Sunday, is unlike any description of any angel. And it's just like the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And so that first appearance is a vision of the Son of God, a vision of Christ. And then Daniel basically passes out. And then what happens next isn't called a vision. A hand touches him. And then the person starts talking and saying things much like the angel Gabriel. So I think we have Gabriel in the second, third, and fourth appearances. I think that's all Gabriel. Now, I know that it's recorded in three separate sections. And I know that at the beginning of a couple of those sections, it says like verse 16, and behold, and verse 18, again, one having the appearance of a man touch me. But that's not because it's a different person each time. That's because Daniel keeps losing it each time. Uh, my youngest daughter has a tremendous dislike for getting up in the morning. And so I oftentimes have to just pick her up, carry her downstairs, and set her up in a chair. At which point, if possible, she will immediately go back to sleep. Now, I could come wake her up again, and she might be like, oh, there's dad, it's morning. And I could wake her up again, and she could be like, oh, there's dad, it's morning. She might think, I'm a, like, this is happening. She might think, oh, dad just came. Dad's been there the whole time. You just keep falling back to sleep, and I'm trying to wake you up. That is basically what happens with Gabriel and Daniel here. It's not the three different people come to Daniel. It's that he keeps... He keeps losing it in between, and Gabriel has to kind of get him revived and going again. So I think it's actually pretty simple. A vision of Jesus first, and then the arrival of the angel Gabriel, who then helps take care of him and strengthen him. And all of that is in preparation for the angel Gabriel to give him the revelation, which begins in chapter 11, verse 2. You see chapter 11, verse 2 says, and now I will show you the truth. So he's finally got Daniel up and he's finally got Daniel strengthened enough to be ready for this revelation. And the revelation continues through chapter 12, verse 4. The chapter divisions here at the end are just, just ignore them. <laughs> chapter 10 through 12 are just one big unit and the neither chapter division is actually very helpful where they're placed um, so just see it all as one flow from chapter 10 through chapter 12. All right, so just think of it in four steps. First of all, Daniel spent three weeks mourning, fasting, and praying. Then God gave Daniel a vision of Christ. Then Gabriel came and got Daniel ready and strengthened and up for the final revelation. And then God gave Daniel the, the final revelation. Okay, so now our next question, how did Gabriel prepare Daniel for the final revelation? First of all, he provided care. Verse 10, when Daniel was passed out on the ground after seeing the vision of Christ, the first thing that he experienced was what? In verse 10, it was a touch, right? A touch of a hand. And that hand also started to pick him up, at least getting him up onto his hands and knees. And in verse 16, Gabriel also touched his lips, helping him to find words to speak. And in verse 18, Gabriel again touched him and strengthened him. Science has, continues to observe the incredible 
evidence of the power of touch to connect and to heal. And all they're doing is just observing the goodness of God's creation. He gave us the capacity for those neurological, hormonal, tactile blessings. And so God has apparently given angels the ability, at least in some situations, to utilize the comforting power of touch. I love the story in 1 Kings 19. Um, I'll mention it again later when the prophet Elijah is running for his life from Jezebel and he's discouraged and he just wants to die and he's done with everything. And God sent an angel who touched him and, and then cooked for him. You'd think God knows how he made us, right? Good food and a warm hug will do you a lot of good. So first of all, he, uh, he provided physical care. Secondly, he reassured Daniel. Uh, just like I already mentioned, back in chapter 9, Gabriel told Daniel, you are greatly loved, meaning you're very precious to God. And the same thing is repeated twice here in verses 11 and 19. And there is no greater reassurance than that. If we're thinking biblically, if we're thinking rightly, there is no greater reassurance than you are precious to God. And in verse 12, Gabriel also tells him, you don't have to be afraid, which means you're safe. You're loved by God and you are safe. So he reassured Daniel. Thirdly, he encouraged Daniel. Verse 12, we talked about this verse last Sunday. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. Daniel, God is listening to you. God cares for you. It is not in vain for you to fast and to pray and to humble yourself and to set your heart to understand because God responds to the humble. God responds to those who seek him, to those who pray. Verse 19. Oh man, greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. Be encouraged, Daniel. So he encouraged him. Now, if we continue in verse 19, we see the next point, middle of verse 19. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. So the next thing he did is he delivered strength. When Jesus was praying in agony in the garden of Gethsemane, it says that an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. I don't know how this works, but we know from Isaiah 40 that God can increase our strength. And any of you who've walked with the Lord for a while know that God has strength you don't have, that he can provide. And apparently sometimes angels can bring the strength of the Lord and deliver it to us. So we see all of this tender care for Daniel, physical care, reassurance, encouragement, strength, but that was not the only reason Gabriel had come. He had ultimately come with a revelation from God in response to Daniel's prayers. And so next we see that Gabriel explained the purpose of the coming revelation. Verse 14, he says, I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision, the revelation you're about to receive is for days yet to come. So the final revelation is going to be about the future of the Jewish people. Now it will include, it will extend beyond that to include the future of the church. Daniel didn't know about the New Testament church, of course. So the final revelation will be about the future of the 
the future of the Jewish people. Not, it will be about, all right, I'll get this sentence straight. The final revelation will be about more than just the future of the Jewish people. It's about your future too. But not less than the future of the Jewish people. Does that make sense? What's going to happen to your people in the latter days? Daniel had already been told that God's purposes for Israel would reach their completion in 77s. And so this final revelation, we'll see, Daniel 12, is going to reach all the way to the end of the 77s, the end of God's work, not only among the Jewish people, but in the world as a whole. So Gabriel explained the purpose of the coming revelation, and then he gave Daniel a glimpse into the angelic warfare behind earthly geopolitics. So let's follow what he says. Uh, First, at the end of verse 11, he says, I have been sent to you. So that reminds us that angels do whatever God wants them to do and that they can only be in one place at a time. And so Gabriel traveled, in some sense, to Daniel. God sent him. Verse 12 Then he said to me, so this is the angel talking to Daniel, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come. I traveled here, sent by God, because of your words. And it sounds like God sent him starting on the very first day of Daniel's special season of prayer and fasting. That's when God sent him. Now, none of that's too surprising because we saw something similar back in chapter 9, an angel who came in response to a prayer. But the big surprise comes in verse 13 when the angel says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me for I was left there with the king of Persia. And at that point, verse 15, Daniel can't handle it any longer. And so the next section is Gabriel trying to help Daniel recover. So really we need to put together verses 13 and 20 because Daniel's got to kind of get his composure back in between with the angel's help. So verse 13 again, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I was left there with the king of Persia. Verse 20, Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? In other words, Daniel, do you remember what I was just telling you a couple minutes ago? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. What in the world is going on here? Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. Now, of course, normally the word prince would be an earthly rule, would be an earthly ruler, and the prince of the kingdom of Persia would be King Cyrus. But it is pretty hard to see how King Cyrus could withstand the angel Gabriel on his trip to Daniel. So that makes us wonder if something else is going on here. And then if we continue in verse 13, we see that Michael is called one of the chief princes who came to help the angel Gabriel. Who's Michael? Uh, Look at chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, 
the great prince who has charge of your people. The great prince who has charge of Israel. But at this point in Israel's history, they have no king. There is no, Israel has never had a king or a prince named Michael. So it's all pretty mysterious until we see that the New Testament tells us that there is an archangel named Michael, as he's called in Jude verse 9. And the word archangel probably means the the greatest or the chief of the angels. In Revelation 12, there is a war in heaven with Michael and his angels fighting against Satan, the dragon. So who is Michael? He's an angel. He's one of or the chief angel, and he seems to be specifically in charge of the Jewish people. So here in Daniel chapter 10, it makes a lot of sense that the prince Michael is the angel Michael who could come and help the angel Gabriel. Chapter 10, verse 21, the end of the verse, there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So here's Gabriel and Michael, two angels working together, warring in unity. But who are they fighting? The prince of Persia and the prince of Greece are the two other people referred to here. And so if the chief chief prince Michael is the chief angel Michael, then the prince of the kingdom of Persia is probably an angel too, a fallen angel, a demon who is fighting God's angels. And the prince of Greece, isn't it interesting? The prince of Greece, verse the end of verse 20, will come. There was no Greek empire yet, but with the rise of the Greek empire would rise another angel, apparently a demon connected to that geopolitical earthly empire. And so there's a lot of mystery here, but it seems that God is giving us a little glimpse into a connection between demons in the spiritual realm and rulers and empires in the earthly realm. When kingdoms rise and fall, when arrogant rulers oppress the people of God, when earthly powers wage war against each other, there is more going on than meets the eye. That's what God's giving us a tiny little glimpse into. There is spiritual warfare connected to earthly warfare, spiritual powers in the heavenly realm that are connected to geopolitical powers on earth. And that might sound a little far-fetched, but it is by far the most likely interpretation of Daniel 10. And I can't get into all of the defense of that right now, but there are possible hints in the Old Testament, two different places, Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 24, that seem to hint at a connection between nations and demons that would parallel what we see here. In the book of Jude, we read about the archangel Michael contending with the devil in regard to the body of Moses. So there's something going on on earth, Moses' death, and yet there's this battle in the spiritual places about it. The book of Revelation clearly speaks of war in the heavenly realm involving angels and demons. And what did we read in our scripture reading today? Ephesians 6, 12. There are cosmic powers 
over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus himself stated at his trial that there was a vast army of angels ready to come fight at his father's command. So we're not being wacky or speculative to look at Daniel 10 and conclude that there is spiritual warfare connected to earthly warfare. Spiritual powers in the heavenly realm connected to geopolitical powers on earth and warfare between angels and demons that has some connection to events among nations and rulers on earth. By the way, it is not at all unscientific to believe that a spiritual realm like that exists. As John Lennox notes, the same scientists who would mock what we're saying right now about angels don't have any problem talking about life elsewhere aliens, and multiverses and other universes teeming with beings that you can't see or know about, not because they're nowhere close, but because they're in a different, whatever, multiverse. And then they look at Daniel 10 and they're like, oh, you poor old-fashioned people who believe in a spiritual realm. No, they see the evidence themselves that there's more than just what you can see and touch and feel. So as Daniel began fasting and praying, God sent Gabriel with a word of truth to reveal to Daniel. But Gabriel had to travel to get there. And on the way, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood him. Apparently, a demon connected to the earthly Persian empire tried to stop Gabriel's mission. Maybe he didn't want the Jewish people to get that message. And verse 13 Gabriel says that he was held up for 21 days. And that's so fascinating because earlier Daniel said he was mourning and fasting and praying for three weeks. So it's, it's not certain here, but it's possible that Daniel received his answer three weeks after he started praying because of a three-week spiritual battle that went on before Gabriel could get there. The middle of verse 13 says that Michael came to help him in this battle. And the end of verse 13 says that Gabriel was left there with the kings of Persia. I don't know what that means. I don't think anybody knows what that means. But it's some other, apparently part of the spiritual battle that required Michael's help. And then down in the middle of verse 20, Gabriel says, Now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. So this warfare was ongoing and Gabriel had to get back to it. And then as we noted, verse 20 says, when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So there were going to be more demons that arose behind the Greek empire too. Verse 21, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince the prince of the Jewish people fought with Gabriel against these demonic powers. And look at chapter 11, verse 1, which is, again, just ignore the chapter break. Chapter 11, verse 1, And as for me, Gabriel, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Okay, so he's, he's going back. He's saying two years. Okay, he's saying in this situation, Michael came to help me. Two years ago, I came to help Michael. 
That's interesting. Two years before, the first year of Darius was when Babylon fell. And I'm completely guessing when I say this next part, but the most important thing that happened in the first year of Darius was that the Persians gave permission for the Jews to go back to their land. And so maybe the demons connected to Persia tried to oppose that, tried to stop that. And Gabriel came and helped Michael in that spiritual battle that was behind the earthly battle for the Jews to get the right to go back to their land. Um, it's a guess, but again, it's not a wacky guess. It's a reasonable guess based on what we're being told here. What's clear is that Gabriel and Michael were fighting spiritual battles, sometimes needing the help of one another, and that these spiritual battles corresponded to stuff that was going on in the nations on earth. Whew. There you go. Daniel 10. All right, so what does that mean? I'm going to do this a couple different ways. First of all, a little outline that just really encourages me that you see on your handout there. Three challenging and encouraging truths from Daniel 10. Christ is awesome and unrivaled because he's got that vision of the Son of God. Second, angels are ministering spirits. And third, angels are warring spirits. If the purpose of the book of Daniel is to guide, comfort, and prepare the people of God as they live under the authority of the world's political powers until Jesus comes again, those are three pretty great truths to guide, comfort, and prepare us. Christ is awesome and unrivaled. Angels are ministering spirits, and angels are warring spirits. We talked about the first of those last week, so let's talk about the other two. First of all, angels are ministering spirits. And I should have put this verse on your handout, and I just forgot at the last second. Hebrews 1, verse 14 says about angels, are they not all ministering or serving spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. God has a vast number of angels. The Bible describes it in uncountable terms like 10,000 times 10,000 and myriads of myriads and things like that. A vast number of angels ready to be sent out to serve the people whom God is saving. What does that mean for us? The point is encouragement that God would care for his people like that. I don't think we're supposed to be looking for angels to come speak to us like they did to Daniel. Remember, Jesus called Daniel a prophet. God was sending him revelations of truth that were to be preserved until the end of time. So today, with the completed scriptures, the words of the prophets, I don't think we're looking for angels to bring messages to us. And I also don't think we, we need to look for angels to touch us. I'm not saying God couldn't do that. Um, but God has given us the body of Christ on earth which is the first way that we experience God's touch in our lives um, as brothers and sisters in Christ through our church family. Um, but, but again, I'm not, I'm not saying that God couldn't do something else. You know, there's that reference to, to enter, in Hebrews to entertaining strangers because some have entertained angels unawares. Who knows how God might bring a, a touch into your life that you need through an angel. Um, but here's the thing. I also don't think we even need to know when angels are caring for us. Because the last thing an angel is going to want to do is attract attention to himself. If we got our attention on an angel, and we know this from like the book of Revelation where they do this, right? If we got our attention on an angel, the angel would say, stop it. <laughs> Put your attention on the God who sent me to care for you. It's not about me. 
It's about the God who cares for you. And so I would say that if we were just to guess based on the little hints in Scripture, it's probably good for us to conclude that there are thousands of times when angels have cared for us and we never knew it, and that's just fine. Because what you probably said in those times was, God's taking care of me. And that's what you were supposed to conclude. But he may have done that through an angel. It's very interesting that we're talking about this now for me personally, because before I started studying this, before I knew we were going to be talking about this now, um, let me back up. Uh, Last fall, I had a couple of days when God just really ministered to me in some very special ways right when I needed it. And I'm sure that was several different ones of you. And it, just like two weeks after that, my regular Bible reading, I came to 1 Kings 19 and that story of the angel who came to care for Elijah. And when I read that story, not thinking about Daniel 10 or 11, when I read 1 Kings 19 a couple weeks later, I thought to myself, I feel like I got touched by an angel two weeks ago. And it's actually the first time in my life I've ever said that uh, was in early November. Not that there was some specific moment that I remember, not that I felt anything physically. I just looked at those couple of days and the kind of care that God gave me right when I needed it. And my thought when I read 1 Kings 19 was, man, it's just like God sent an angel right then to take care of me. Now, I don't know if I'm right about that. And it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. I don't need to know how God did it. God was caring for me, and I'm not going to get caught up in some world of trying to figure out where the angels are and what the angels are doing. That's not going to be healthy. But we need to know they exist and that God sends them to serve us. And that most of all, we need to know that we have the kind of God who would do that. The kind of God who cares for us like that. Angels are ministering spirits because our God cares for us so tenderly and so personally and cares for us so individually. But they are not only ministering spirits, they are also warring spirits. And that combination is encouraging. So what can we conclude from the angelic warfare here in Daniel 10? And I guess whole books have been written on this, but here's a brief, just a couple little thoughts. First of all, we have to accept that God only wants us to have a very small glimpse. Any of us who have a curious nature really want to know more. (laughs) But this is all that we need, just enough to know what is going on. And in Daniel 10, we actually see one of the reasons for that. If you actually knew a little bit more about what's going on, you'd pass out. (laughs) You wouldn't be able to keep living if you could see everything God sees. It would so overwhelm you. So God just gives us this tiny little glimpse, and we have to be content with the tiny glimpse God gives us. Some people have tried to create an entire approach to the Christian life that is built around spiritual warfare. And that can be as simple as saying, you know, something like, um, demons cause your temptations. So the way to get victory over sin is to figure out which demons are causing your temptations and to drive out the demons of whatever it is that you're studying with, or it can go, you're struggling with, or it can go much further into attending seminars where you learn how to map demonic territories and fight demonic demons. And you learn about tools like, like, um, uh, oh, I just forgot the word, identificational repentance to figure out which like curses there are in your life that you didn't know were there and that kind of a thing to win these battles, how to use prophetic acts to, 
drive out territorial demons and things like that. That goes so far beyond anything in Daniel 10 or anywhere else in the Bible. It is sensational. It is not biblical. But what can we learn from this? What does this angelic warfare in Daniel 10 mean for us? Well, one big thing it means is that this life is not a playground. It is a battlefield. And though we aren't allowed to see it and know about the specifics, we can be confident that there are high-level spiritual battles going on related to the geopolitical powers of this world. And we know that there are mighty warring angels battling on our behalf. Honestly, it's really humbling. It reminds us there is so much more going on than we have any idea about. And it reminds us that we need so much more help than we ever know we need. That God is doing for us so much more than we ever have any idea God is doing for us. How humbling that is when we tend to be self-sufficient Americans. You know, we are not. Not at all. And then it reminds us practically that in Ephesians 6, God has already told us what armor we need. It's scary when you're told there's this huge battle going on, but you don't know much about it. And that's why these teachers are able to get these crowds to come to their seminars where they make up stuff about spiritual warfare, even though it's not really biblical. It's because people want details and people want to get equipped and people want to have armor and people want to be ready. But instead of details, what God did is he made us generally aware of spiritual warfare. And then he told us exactly what armor we need. And frankly, it's pretty basic. Not basic in its power. I don't mean that. But you don't have to learn about spiritual mapping and identificational repentance and these fancy tricks of spiritual warfare. You know what the armor is in Ephesians 6? Truth. Righteousness. The gospel. Faith. Salvation. The word of God and prayer. And I'm not going to get a huge crowd at a conference to tell them those big secrets, right? That's just the main stuff of the Christian life. That's the armor God has assigned to his children and he knows what he's doing. And remember Ephesians 6, he described that armor in the context of spiritual battles that we can't see. That armor comes right after he refers to cosmic powers over this present darkness. What do you do about those cosmic powers? Truth, righteousness, gospel, faith, salvation, the Bible, and prayer. That's what you do. That's the victorious battle armor. And of all of those different parts of the armor in Ephesians chapter 6, there is one that connects most directly to Daniel 10. And that is prayer. What we see in Daniel 10 is that his three weeks of mourning, fasting, and praying set off a spiritual battle that Daniel did not even know was going on until he was told about it three weeks later. His prayers had a direct point of impact in the spiritual realm. Angels got to work because Daniel prayed. I mean, God is the one who sent them. 
It's not like he shortcutted God. But God sent angels to work because Daniel prayed. And so it's no surprise that the description of the armor in Ephesians 6 ends by saying, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Many of the, when people get off track with spiritual warfare, what they're teaching is that you need to be alert for things that it's not going to help for you to try to be alert about because God's not going to let you see them. He's not going to let you get beyond this glimpse into those realms. What Paul says is the way you keep alert for spiritual warfare is watching for what you can pray for, for your brothers and sisters. That's the kind of alertness that God's soldiers need. What can I pray for? What can I pray for? What can I pray for? When there are massive spiritual battles raging, and when God mercifully doesn't let us know any specifics about what's going on, we need truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, and to be watching, what can I pray for? Praying at all times in the Spirit, making supplication for all the saints. And we can do that with the confidence that our prayers trigger immediate responses in heaven and even sometimes battles in the spiritual realm. Is it any surprise then that Satan tries so hard to keep you from praying? He's got good reason for that. Okay, so hopefully you're, hopefully I'm making sense with what I'm trying to apply from Daniel 10. There are basically four big routes of application in Daniel 10. The first is comfort. So we're living in a world that is like beastly. Remember the empires are this just nasty beasts. And we're living in a world that is cold and that is heartless. And in that world, God says, I've got a huge host of angels and they are serving spirits that I send out to serve you. And so there is great comfort in angels as ministering spirits. Secondly, there is the encouragement of angels as warring spirits. Again, you turn on the news, you watch what's happening in the world, and it is a world that looks to be out of control with vicious beasts. And we need the comfort, the encouragement of remembering angels are warring spirits. And in the final analysis, they will not lose. God's purposes will be accomplished. So there is the comfort from Daniel 10, encouragement from Daniel 10. Then the third kind of route of application here is look to Christ that we talked about last Sunday. And we can actually connect that to these other things. Jesus is the shepherd caring for you. And so if, if angels are being sent to serve you, it is your shepherd directing that. And Jesus is the captain of the host of the Lord, the captain of the armies of heaven. So these warring spirits are under the authority of the general who is Jesus. So ultimately then, in all of these things, look to Christ. The focus is not to be on the angels, but on him, the one who sends them both to care and to war. And then the final big route of application in Daniel 10 is, therefore, pray based on what we see here in this passage. A little unusual to talk about angels like this, but God's Word says it. It's what the Bible tells us. So let our hearts be challenged, comforted, encouraged, 
look to Christ, and let's pray. Think with me practically about this one little moment, because it's going to come in one, two, three, three more Sundays. Prayer meeting, first Sunday of every month. Do you think that there's a spiritual battle going on between approximately 10.50 and 11 o'clock a.m. on prayer meeting Sundays? It's the do I stay or do I go battle. And that means so much more than we think it means, right? There's actually like heavenly warfare going on in relation to the little decisions here on earth about whether we're going to take the time to pray together to find out what I could be praying for or not. Boy, I hope that brings some more uh, in our hearts, this stirring up of our hearts to pray because of what God is doing. So let's pray now. Father, thank you for these little glimpses into this spiritual realm. Thank you that you are for us because Christ has forgiven us and made us your children. Thank you for the comfort of angels as ministering and warring spirits. Lord, you know our tendency to just live in the light of what we can see and feel and what's in the here and now. Help us to have hearts that uh, see heavenly realities, spiritual realities, and as a result, pray. And help us always to look to Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.